Hello out there, my name is Kyle Canelli and welcome to the Daydream Podcast. We're kicking off our first podcast series known as the Case Study Series, where we spend some time with notable folks in the Daydream orbit to bring you closer to these interesting figures and sneak in some surf history and design lessons. For our first case study, we have a very special guest, Mark Andrini, shaping legend, an adept business person, surf history preservationist, author of a new book titled The Gift, and not to mention a really talented surfer. Andrini is known far and wide as one of the highest regarded historical shapers living today, and we're so excited for you to get to spend the next hour hanging with Mark. This audio is from the last time we were up at Mark's house and his peer, unadulterated Mark dropping tons of knowledge and great stories. Get your notepad out and get ready to learn because we're going to jump straight into it. Thanks for joining. This is my V-bottom edge board. Since I make an edge boards, I wanted to try it on every board that I always ride. And so I figured, take this off so you can see it. So I figured I'd try it on a V-bottom, which seems like a really crazy idea. (laughs) But this has been my favorite longboard probably that I've ever owned because the bottom doesn't have too much V in the center, but where you have the edge that comes up like this, it acts like a V on each rail. So edge boards already act like V-bottoms, like they turn like a heavily V'd board because it banks here off of this big transition and it just goes right up on the rail. It's, it is, it's, it's basically a triplane hull so that the outside of the board is a full hull with the rails essentially lifted all the way up to the deck. And then in, in the center, you have a concave plane I mean, there is V here, but it's a double concave in the back, single in the front. So you drop a concave plane in the middle of a hull, a displacement hull, basically. Then I have a regular V bottom in there. This is the exact same board, except it's a conventional V bottom. So it's just a hull, and there's no center plane. And so that one's got, you know, the deep V in it and the rolled bottom. And I actually ride them both because I love the feeling of both of them. But I actually uh, prefer the edge board. I, I ride that the most because it just, it, it's so fast. It's unbelievable how fast that thing goes. You have to have more finesse to make this a rolled bottom board. You have to really be right in the pocket. Whereas the, if there is no pocket, you know, that thing will just carry you across the dead spots and put you into a pocket. And that's really the difference. So, so they're both good. They're just, you know, two different flavors of the same cool board. So the edge bottom, I really, you know, I like to... I can put it on any board that I like to ride and it just gives it that extra dimension. You know, it isn't a surfboard, it's just a bottom. You know, we call it an edge board like it's its own model, but really it's not. It's just a, it's an optional bottom, if you want to call it that. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Brian, I, I used to be the only one that flattened it off behind the fin. because. That's what Jerry Lopez used to do on all of his pipeline guns in 72. 
flatten it off behind the fan. That way the board wouldn't stay on the rail. When you're done turning, you just lean the other way and it comes back around. So I started doing that on my V-bottoms in the mid-70s because that's what makes V work. The V's all up here in front of the fan, which lets the board bank and it'll stay all the way through the turn until you're done with that arc and then it'll just come right back onto the other rail. So most people don't know that, but that's the way you're supposed to do V. How do you make a big surfboard do that with all that foam? That was just a way to, to overcome the volume, if you want to say that. Because once you thin a board down and shorten it, you can overpower the board and put it on the rail. You know, so that, that, that's how all that came about. That just got the ball rolling. Well, all boards were round bottoms until the down rail era of 71. Every board had a round bottom, so all boards were real displacement hulls, as they really all should be, you know, to a degree. You know, the small, tiny boards need concave to help lift them. Uh, but generally speaking, a board should be rolled to some degree in the bottom, because that's what makes them settle down in the curve of the wave. You know, they feel really natural. There's less resistance, and that's what lets them go fast, you know. That's a power blade that's made with unidirectional carbon fiber and epoxy tooling resin. And that's handmade by George, that fin. He sent me two of them. He has two and Ellis Erickson has two. He made six of them. And that's the prototype that Chuck Ames is going to build to make them available. And see how the fin twists? It has this, it twists to the side so that when you're turning it, it gives you toe that helps you come through the turn and when it bends back it gives you thrust like a thruster so it's a single fin that actually acts like a thruster and we think this is probably the greatest development for a performance single fin yet and you know and, and technically the more fin area the more drag and what you want is less resistance in, in a, a, a hull has less resistance because the curve of the bottom settles into the curve of the wave and there's, it doesn't actually fight. You know, the flat bottom makes the board want to run down and ride the bottom of the wave. Unless, you know, a thruster is different because the fin cluster catapults you up. They, those ride high in the wave. I'm talking like a single fin, a flat bottoms. They want to ride down low because the water is slopey there. They want to go down where the water's flat because it just mat mates up. But if the wave has curve, the rolled bottom wants to ride up high in the pocket where you have really have more speed. So it's a little known or little, it's not a well understood uh, difference between those two approaches, you know? Well, I'll, you know, the worst thing that can happen is, is we'll go out and we'll come back and we'll be laughing at ourselves for the rest of the day for having done it. So let's do it. it. Yeah, but we just, it, the place is really just ru rustic and we just left it. I mean, it's, uh, it's just the way this area is. It's not, it's not fancy. We like it. I was in my 30s before I ever washed a car. Okay, good as new. You have a long board, a performance board, and a gun or a glider.
you only need, those are the three boards that make up all the foundation of surfing, right? All three disciplines. And so I never want to roll out of my driveway without being prepared. So I'm always prepared except for the days that I forget to bring my wetsuit. But uh, I figured this might be a good spot. I got my little heater. <laughs> That's important. So, you know, I, I order the fins, you know, so that I have them. When a guy orders a board, I have the fins made when I order the blank. And so I have all my fins, you know, my Greeno high speed fins, and I get True Aims regular fins. But most of my fins are, you know, the, are my A-Flex. They're my own templates that Rainbow makes. So I keep a big supply of them here. So that as the boards are finished, I got the fins. So this was my 21-year-old uh, 20, idea of cool. You know, black with the Italian colors. And I don't know where the heck I came up with this idea. So my whole career was there. I never think of myself, I think of myself as I just do this for, on the side, even though I do a lot of it. But my whole career was in Santa Barbara, you know, in, in my 20s. And that was during the 70s. So that was really, I always think of that as my period. Now what's different today is, is that people are more open to different designs. But I still only build what I specialize in which uh, when I was doing it in the 70s, you pretty much built what people wanted. So it was more custom work. And then I did what I like to do on the side more, you know, for myself and my friends, which is the hulls and V-bottoms and spoons and all that, you know. So that was more a sideline, whereas now I, that's more of what I, what I will specialize in. It's a tool shed that I converted into a shaping room. So the fin made every surfboard work better, even a longboard. Even if you take any peg longboard, get rid of the D-fin, put a nice greeno fin on it, and they work great. You know, everything works better with a greeno fin, period. And so we had that part figured out. And then they already were building some really beautiful, sleek, pintail uh, guns in the 50s. And this is the part people don't understand, that the 50s, the boards were extremely refined because you're coming off of the Bob Simmons, you know, hydrodynamic platform of uh, acceleration where the rocker accelerates forward and it flattens out in the tail and the rails are down in the back and all the way up in the nose and the rails are nicely foiled. Joe Quigg took that design and made round pintails for surfing Rincon, and they're all out of real light balsa. And that era was really uh, highly evolved surfboards. And then, you know, the pig surfboard became 
really popular for small waves, and 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 that's when the boom hit during that short period where the peg was the the great small waveboard because they were they're just for little beach break surf. So everybody thinks that the longboard era is about pigs, and it isn't. It's just that's when the boom happened. That's what everybody thinks of when you think of longboarding. So when when the the transition happened, we really went back to the platform from the 30s, 40s, 50s, where the hot curl became the Makaha gun, which was a quig-style pintail with a beautifully foiled, you know, S-stack and lifted up rails in the nose, down in the back, a nice slender fin on them, and it went back to that and in the transition. So Dick Brewer's Bing Pipeliner, which was an evolution of that Makaha board, all he did was make it shorter and, and an inch narrower. That was it, and that's a minigun. The miniguns, original miniguns were 8.8, eight, 8.10, just like this one, because the people were writing 9.10s for guns to 10.10. So they just took a regular semi-gun and cut a foot off it, and now you're down to an 8.8, eight, you know, or an 8.10. And so that that is really an awesome, to me, it's really beautiful. The, the minigun was really Hawaiian-bred board, and uh, the V-bottom happened simultaneously in Australia, really slightly ahead of it, but not by much. But the V-bottom was, you know, again, the, the spoon made for small, really small waves. You could really lay the thing over. And that's purely McTavish hanging out with George Greeno. Everyone wanted in Australia wanted to surf like Greeno. And nobody in California cared about it. And, uh, which is astounding to me. It's astounding. So the V-bottom followed George Greeno's template of his kneeboard. And that's why it has a big, wide tail. But because it was so long and unwieldy that they put the V in it, you know, to make it tip on the rail like Greeno so you could do a rail turn. That's that simple. So even McTavish, within six months, stopped making V-bottoms because a board that's that long... You can't keep it on the rail in good surf. It's only good for small waves. And so they went right to a round pin with a, a semi-flattish bottom with some roll in it, just real neutral board, and that became the McTavish Tracker. And, you know, a pintail isn't very forgiving. They're best for big, powerful, hollow waves. So we ended up right in the middle, like a round tail or a round pin you know, with, with a relaxed outline. And that's where it all settled. And then you could surf like Greeno on those. And so that was the transition. And we quickly passed through and started getting into uh, twin fins. 1970, we're making twin fins. That's because of Steve Liss, you know, making his kneeboards. And... Uh, and then, the, then the, of course, the fish came later, believe it or not. Not much later, maybe a year or two. People were writing stand-up fish. And then uh, the down rail era was ushered in. And really, you know, Steve Liss used a flat bottom down rail platform. But, um, uh, the, the, you know, that, that's a fairly involved topic. 
but but nonetheless, you know, Brewer is the one that's really known for making that design work. I mean, there was Mr. X, Mike Henson, you know, guys that used down down rail boards, but the the edges flared out. They didn't tuck under. You know, that was really Brewer that fixed all that. What about um, like when you were uh... brought? And he and I brought our own. We built all of our own hot dog boards and semi guns, but like. You know, we went there to learn, and so we had the best guys shape our boards. And so, we, you know, we're there, and uh, I was glassing for a living then, because I didn't go over there to shape. I went there to learn. So I, I glassed for uh, Bing. Mike Eaton was shaping all the Bings then. And I met all kinds of these really famous surfers that rode his board, Jeff Hackman, Keith Paul, you know. Peter Cole, all those guys were at the house getting, the, you know, coming over and I'd glass their boards for them. So I got to meet them all. But Michael Peterson was there. That was 73. And he was there that year. He needed a place to stay and we had him stay with us for a few days. Uh, well, he, he found a place nearby. And I don't remember how it happened because it's so long ago. All I re- but I'll never forget knowing him and surfing with him. And looking at his boards, you know, he had his board. We taught board design, you know, look at his boards. We'd surf Elsie Land together. The guy was incredibly high energy in the water, just an animal in the water. And he could just, his arms were like hung down to his ankles. And he just, you know, as an animal, the, the way he could paddle. He could out paddle anybody. And uh, super focused in the water and on land, he was, a super mellow, neat guy, you know, real easy going and fairly uh, not outgoing at all. You know, he wasn't a guy that was out there talking up a bunch of stories and hanging out with people. So we got along really well because we're both, you know, quiet. I used to be quieter then, I guess. But uh, it was really neat seeing and knowing him and, and seeing his boards, you know, because we in those days, all of us board builders, we made the board from start to finish. We, we shaped them. We glassed them. We made our fins, and we did our color work. And, you know, that was very common then. There weren't a lot of factories, you know, so most of us knew how to build the whole board. Michael was the same. All of, that's what we all did. And so he had his own way of, you know, we made our own fin templates. There was no, no standard anything. We each had our own way of doing it. And uh, so it was really fun to see. We wanted to see what everybody else was doing. And so being on the North Shores is how you kept in touch with it all. I mean, I feel like you kind of, everybody kind of had to make their own equipment too because everything in the transition era was evolving so quick, right? I would say that that's true. You know, if you were a board builder in those days, I guess I was. Technically, I, can't, I keep forgetting that. I, w- I actually was. But uh, for me, it was if you made something that worked, then you'd sell it to your friends. You'd never experiment on, on a customer ever. So that was all. We did our own experimenting. So, yes, we had to figure out all the different designs, but we did it on our, on our own. You know, And so we had to learn what rocker worked, how hard does the rail have to be. 
what is the right fan and where does it go? You know, that, uh, that, that was, for me, that's the greatest education because that's the only way you can know how to put a surfboard together. So like today, I can, uh, if a guy, I mean, I can do custom work. I just don't have time. I prefer not to. Because if a guy is that particular, he should just make his own board. That's what I think. But I can take any set of ingredients and make them work because I've already tried everything that doesn't work. I know everything that doesn't work. I've already done it, you know. So if a board has a lot of rocker, you've got to put lower rails on it. If it's got no rocker, you've got to lift the rails up higher. You know, there's all... Board has to have a certain amount of give to it, and so you kind of you learn where all those limits are for each size and width and and all that, and uh, it's really neat. So I love making boards today more than I ever have because I know I can put something together that'll be really cool to write, and it'll work. You know, this took a lifetime you know, of making mistakes, or I guess maybe experimenting is a better way to put it. It's really about just experimenting trial and error and and that's why computers don't help anybody make a surfboard all that does is help you um, reduce your labor or replicate something you already locked in they don't they don't design I don't believe that a computer designs a surfboard you have to feed it the parameters and it, it might it might cut it out for you you have to know what it is that you want the computer to do. It doesn't figure it out for you. It can't. It's just like a calculator. And so what people don't under, always understand is, is that speed comes from lack of resistance. And rocker relieves the resistance on the front part of a board. But, you know, all those things were sorted out through the evolution of surfboard designers. And Bob Simmons figured all that out. You know, he studied hydrodynamics and uh, the Lord Lindsay, who did a whole book on naval architecture and planing hulls and displacement hulls and all the ratios and all that. Well, we have to just apply it intuitively to a surfboard. But, you know, all those things have been figured out. Low rocker was used when boards were made out of trees because whatever rocker was in the tree, that's how much the surfboard had. And we, if you grew up on those boards like we did, the scariest thing in the world was purling and catching a rail and having it flip over and hit you in the ribs. That's definitely true. But And the reason that I do that is because my goal, see, my goal is I want my boards to be exactly as good backside as frontside. And if you have a forward-footed board, it's almost, well... Unless you're an incredibly talented surfer, it's really difficult to go backside on them because backside surfing is all oriented off your rear foot, which is planted over the fan, and you have your trunk is all the way over the inside rail. You get this huge amount of leverage, and you get a lot of drive off your rear foot backside. And so uh, those front-forwarded boards, it's really hard to make them go as easily as frontside. And so my boards are made so that I can go backside or frontside. It's exactly the same. It doesn't make any difference. I, I actually don't think that I 
surf any better on a right than a left, you know, because I've made my boards do both equally well. And in a way, I think going backside has an advantage. You have more leverage in your body. You can do the mother of all bottom turns backside much easier. Do you have a favorite, like, displacement hole surfer? Besides Wayne Lynch? <laughs> you know, it'd be, you'd have to say Nat Young and Bob McTavish and Wayne Lynch are like my three anchor guys. And Ted Spencer is right there behind him. You know, Keith Paul was incredible, but there's not very much footage of him. But when he was riding the displacement hulls, he was as good as all. He's actually beat all of them. He won the national titles in 68, I think. And he beat Midget, everybody. Midget Fairley also, I love Midget. That guy is an incredible hull surfer, you know. Oh, yeah, and you can't, you can't forget Midget at the World Contest in Puerto Rico riding a what became is my inspiration for the Serena model, a pintail hull. That's what he's riding, a 710. And nothing's more beautiful than that, the way he rides that board. You know, I love that footage. You know, I, I have it. I have that disc. And I still love watching it. I'll probably get the light, this overhead light off. This is a gun. But th this is for Dave Rostovich. He ordered it. So this one will be put to the test. <laughs> but this one has V in it, in the center, and then you have the, you know, this acts like a V, these outer planes. And then you have a completely round outer rail, which lets the board suck water around it in it it holds onto it like a clamp so they don't spin out but the water releases off of this edge so they're fa they're incredibly fast and you can't spin them out so you can put a tiny little fin in there which doesn't create any drag or as minimal amount of drag as possible that the edge board really likes you know jumbled up conditions and so you want it to have lift in the center so that you can skim over the dead spots and then you want a soft forgiving outer rail to manage chop, right? Because if it's really choppy, if the rails are way up here on the deck, then it's like a it's just like a boat, you know, it's boat technology. You know, so your your um your rails are way up where the chop is and your bottom's down here doing all the work. So it just makes it very, very forgiving. You're not going to catch a rail and get dumped off. But the, the, the added benefit to that is, is a convex rail creates a, a, a suction, so you get the hold that you need when you're really laying into a turn. And so it, it's, it's good for everything. It's, it's, there's, no, there's no negatives to it. And so the idea of the edge board was, uh, is for rough conditions, for writing a B-grade spot. That's why George did it. He said his spoon, if you had a wave like Rincon Cove with perfect bottom tension, you can write a round bottom board and it'll fly. But as soon as you hit a dead spot, like his spoon in dead spots, it just die. It won't, won't run across them. And so that's why he, he started putting rails and beads of Bondo on his spoon 
to create a little concave to help him get across the dead spots. And it worked in small waves, but it was the fin was too big on that board. He didn't want to wreck the board, so he started over and made what became the platform for an edge board. It's really just a triplane hull, soft outer rail, narrow center plane with the edges inboard. So it's really a down rail board where the edges are moved inboard. Instead of the edges out here, they're just pushed inside. And it's interesting that they do the same job. But the further out to the rail you put the edges, it, all it does is create a negative reaction. One, it makes the board easier to catch a rail. And two, when the edge is way out here, it makes it harder to tip it onto the rail because it's flat all the way to the edge. You don't, you don't have any help getting you to leverage it up onto the rail. That's why the pros ride boards that are so thin they can overpower them because they have a concave bottom. But these boards, you know, do all the work for you. So it's like power steering. They're real easy to turn. Just go right up on the rail. And that round rail's real forgiving. So it does everything you want. And it makes them really fun to ride in, in messy waves. The idea of an edge board as a gun is that it paddles as well as a board 10 inches longer. But the bigger the board, the more wetted surface. And resistance to wetted surface is what creates drag. And it goes up by the square. So as you, if you increase the uh, area of a surfboard by uh, 10%, the resistance goes up by like 30%. You know, it's a mathematical formula. And so the bigger the board, the more drag there is. So if you can ride a smaller board, then it'll go faster. That's why tow boards are incredibly fast, but you can't paddle them. You have to be towed in. And so if you can make a paddle-in board that paddles like a board 10 inches longer, then you can ride a smaller board and you have a faster uh, gun. And, uh, and so that's one, uh, also an advantage of the design. So the design has all kinds of applications, and it isn't just for crummy waves. It's just that they happen to, that's what, what the, was behind going to this design. And that my job is to refine it and, and make it adaptable to all the different styles of surfboards because George doesn't ride surfboards. And like he says, you, only you shapers can sort out what feels right or what works right. You have to sort it out. You know, because it feels totally different when you're standing up and where you're surfing and how you surf and all that. So it's, it's a design that you have to adapt to the type of boards that you ride and the waves you ride. But I completely collaborated with him. He gave me his templates. George gave me his templates. He mailed them over. They're, they're all laying right here. These are, you know, there's an inner plane template and an outside template for each board from 5'8". No, from 5'5 five, five to 9'6". These are spin templates, but that's the inner plane of the 8'8". Eight, eight. And this would be, that's the center plane of the 6'9". And this is the actual template of the 9'6 gun. It's a spin template, so the nose is on this side and the tail's on this side. So a little confusing to, to look at. This is the 5'9". 
That's the outer template. See, it's like a little Michael Peterson template. So that's the 5.9. And I have these boards out in my barn. We can look at them later. And this is the center plane. So when you see them together, it gives you an idea of how they work. See that? So this is the inner plane, and this is the outer. So that, that, that shows you how the set works. Pretty cool. I, my templates go all the way back to 1970. I, I keep them all and I still use them. I have all the ancient surfboards, Olos, Hot Curls, Elias, you know, everything that I've, all the projects I've done over my lifetime, I have all the templates here. And I still use them all. And I still, I made a template last week. You know, so whenever I need to, I, I make a, a template. So they go through all the years. I made three of them. That was my platform for all my down rail boards from the 70s. And I have three of them. So, yeah, I, they're all the original templates. I still use them. There's no reason to remake them. There's a lot of work making these things. There's the 7.2. And then this would be the 7.8. idea was is they're all wide point forward single fin and I just wanted a perfect arc all the way no straight spots and then I would put whatever tail I wanted that's why these are all they're not actually square tails it's just one line and then I would draw whatever tail I wanted on there diamond tail round pin round tail a lot of these I made into wing double wing swallow tails double wing pins you know, but I'd use this curve, you know, to get them. And there are no boards. In this day, uh, nobody wrote a board over 710. There's no such thing, you know, unless you had a full-on gun for the North Shore. So for California, I had my 687278. Those templates covered everything I made. <laughs> we were really young then. You didn't need any big logs. Other, and then I had longboard templates as well. Which are still, they're still, all still here. So, you know what? That's Greg Little's AccuPlaner no that I bought from him. This one? This, this big, gigantic, monstrous chrome 10,000 RPM. This thing is actually scary. It pulverizes the, uh, uh, a one inch redwood stringer, it just vaporizes it. But it's modeled after a Skill 100, which is what all of us use. And then this one is mine that I bought brand new in 1970 or 71. It's probably 71. <laughs> of course, it looks better when you blow the dust off it. But I love this thing. I've rebuilt it at least twice, rewound the motor. It's gone through dozens of brushes and blades and... But I love this tool. I've had it all my life, most of my life. I cut the back off, you know, and made the front slide work really easily. Just all the stuff that every shaper used to do at the time. <laughs> That's brand new. Yeah, that was a brand, brand new planer. One of the few things I ever bought in my life that was new, you know. This is the draft. That's just a draft.
it'll it should arrive April 15th right in the middle of April and then we'll be, do the big launch at Mollusk in San Francisco on the 28th of April but but this is 11 11 years of of work to put this thing together you know photocopy pages but this is a lot of a lot of hours it's a book about the evolution of surfing surfboards and the gift of the Hawaiian culture of surfing and boards you know their gift as it's been passed on to the rest of the world and it's just from my point of view as a board builder and a student of surfboard history it's like 220 pages 75,000 words and uh, most almost all the photos have never been published before and then I've got a handful of iconic ones that have been but mostly it's all brand new stuff that's not been seen that's that's me in the surf team days. Here's George at Watagos, his favorite break. There's me and KP on the balcony. To me, it all started with that people are ask, never stop asking me, why does this work and why does that work? And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to write a, an article and explain what basic hydrodynamics so that I can put it all down. This is Mickey Dora at Rincon writing the prototype Yater Spoon at Rincon. How good is that? That's a Ron Stoner shot. There's Dave on my little edge board. Kyle Canelli on the first edge board. But anyway, that's just a little sneak preview. Pasta sauce or something? Exactly. I think I'll just you know break in the back so it'd pivot more. This is just a photo of a guy who's no longer with us surfing Honolulu Bay. And I love it just because it just captures what I think the essence of surfing is. It's like, this is just so cool. <laughs> you know, that's all you could be thinking about when you're either doing that or, or looking at a picture of it. You're just sliding and just loving it. You know, it's a trimming sport. And it's just being in the, in the, you know, enjoying nature. These are just all random notes for all the different boards that I've made over the years. If I need to keep track, most of my notes are on the templates themselves. Ones are knee board that I must have made. This is probably in the 1970 or 71, 5, 6 by 21, 18 nose. They're huge, but those are the kind of fins, they're like a nine inch base and they're four and a half deep. I'd say this is my first commercial piece. A friend of mine named Jim Campbell, who was a great board builder from New York, that's how much a new board was between 85 and 95 bucks. This is probably 1970. 
I would say. I was still doing repairs, apparently, for money. So, actually, if we had started, there's, there's only two spaces missing. And one of them is there'd be no fin, right? And then here would be a disc, just a small disc. The first fin was, of course, Tom Blake was just a little runner, like on a, like on a water ski. So, but basically, you just have a little bump to give a little bit of hold. And like I was explaining earlier, the 50s is when boards are really streamlined and nicely foiled with progressive rocker increasing into the nose, the rails dropping down in the tail. Those were speed boards. Joe Quigg made them into round pins for Rincon, and they were highly evolved surfboards. Then came the late 50s and the, the wide-tailed board for hot dog surf, the pig, was popular just before the big boom in surfing and of course the fins had to get bigger and bigger to hold a big wide tail from spinning out and so you had the D fin and so most people equate you know vintage classic longboarding with that era although that isn't actually isn't actually accurate this was when we were going backwards when we we're using these big slabs and so I, I do make them for people, but I always ask them if they're sure they really want one because I recommend that you skip this step and go all the way over here. But we'll get to that one. So the first attempt to reduce the area of a D-fin was the flow-through fin done by Brian Bradley and Jeff White of White Owl. And they simply took a D-fin and cut the center out to reduce the area so that the board was easier to turn and freer. And Brian Bradley, who is the shaper for White Owl, told me that he kept cutting the hole out bigger and bigger to see how much he could get away with before the board would spin out. And so that, that's where this was the first attempt at reducing the area of a D-fin. But this was way easier to make. And this is modeled after George Greeno's knee board. The, the base is narrower than the fin is tall, so it's a high aspect ratio is the technical way to describe that, but that's all it means. And it's a similar amount of area to, area to this fin, but this one is a heck of a lot easier to make, and this one surfs more, much more efficiently. And so, you know, th this fin replaced the D fin, and you can see, basically, you've just eliminated all the area off the back of the fin, so that as the water comes around the fin, as soon as it lets go of the trailing edge, the board releases. The longer the water has to hang on, it's like a big fat wing on an airplane. It makes the thing really slow, but it gives you a lot of hold. Well, the boards with the round bottom already have a lot of hold, so the less fin area, the faster the board went, and the easier it was to turn. So the water lets go of the fin early, and the board comes through the turn quicker. It's just that simple. And so from here, of course, we went straight into these Greeno-style, highly refined fins, which is just this taken further. And, you know, we've come more vertically, straight up out of the board. It just lets go quicker. It zing, zing, like a, the fin on a tuna. And of course, th this fin is the closest 
to a tuna fin. And this is the highest expression of Greeno's tuna fin theory. As a tuna fin can swim 40 knots, and so George just copied the outline of the trailing fin of a tuna fish. That's all he did. And he was right. The water lets go so quickly. The depth gives you hold, and the narrowness gives you fast release of water. You have less drag. So that's how the whole introduction to modern surfing was when you could increase your speed through a turn. Up to that point, all these fans, all they did was hold the board while you were at trim speed only. Once you get to, down to this type of a fan, now you're accelerating when you push on the rail. That created modern surfing. Thanks to the tuna fish and George Greeno, we have that. And then over time, the variations were, you know, different forms of cutaways. This is, uh, you know, there's all different kinds and people have done different versions of it. This is one of Greeno's versions, the paddle fin. This was really used more for wind sailboards where you have a, a lot of pressure to drive yourself upwind and that's why you had a really long leg on the back to help you know, push against. Otherwise, if there was less resistance, you'd slide backwards. But the wind pressing on the forward sail pushes against this and it drives you forward. So variations of this have been made for surfboards with not a great amount of success. That, that's another story coming later. And then, of course, we went down to short, shallow fins. Those are a set of quads down there at the end. And the idea of, a, of the short fin is just the way water quick, quickly releases off of a narrow fin when you cut the fin down short, it also releases quicker off the top of the fin. So that those short fins create a very short turning arc, but they don't hold very well. That's why you have to have groups of them, so that you have one fin back to anchor the tail in and one forward to pivot around. And um, so, the, the, of course, the thruster or the quad or a multi-fin board was the final iteration of, of fin technology. But like what we were talking about earlier, what's... But the idea, it's important to remember that the goal of making a high-performance modern surfboard was that it would do whatever you wanted it on demand. Well, that was all fine and dandy if you were a surfer that lived through the longboard era and knew how to ride a single fin because you knew what to do with it. You're still flowing, running with the energy line of the wave. And um, so those early thruster surfers, and Tom Curran's probably the best example, uh, and I mentioned Akalupo is, of course, an incredible down-the-line power surfer on a thruster. Martin Potter was incredible. Simon Anderson. Oh, I mean, a ton of guys were. But many of them, if not all of them, had started on single fins. And so they had that, had to have the knowledge of where to be on the wave to get all the juice. So the, 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 the distinct difference between riding a thruster and a single fin that didn't show itself until later is that on a thruster, you're actually working off the fin cluster. And if you had already learned how to ride a, a single fin board, single fin boards, you're really riding 
the surfboard and the fan was very little more than just to hold the thing from going sideways. You, it didn't develop, it didn't help you do much of anything. It just, it tried to just stay out of your way and not cause too much drag. So you really had to know how to ride the wave and the board and get all you could out of it. Whereas with the thruster, those short towed-in fins that let go of the water so fast that as long as you were pushing on it from one turn to the next, you get a real short burst of speed. And as long as you kept turning it, you kept getting thrust forward. And so what happened is, is that people that were learning to surf on thrusters, before they really knew how to use the surfboard, they could just stand and push on the fins and the fins would push them all over the wave. And so you ended up really surfing the fins more than the board, the less experienced riders. And it led to a, a style of very choppy, erratic surfing that didn't always seem to flow with the, with the wave itself or the, you know, the surf spot that they were at or, or fit any particular style. It was just more, much more random. So I, I always thought that's really interesting, and I think that's what's damaged the aesthetic of surfing, is not enough people have learned. These things are really hard to surf after you've ridden a thruster, but if you learn to surf on them, it really helps you in the big picture if you want to go to this. How important is the fin in relation to the surfboard? And the fin has to be engineered to complement the surfboard. It should never be the buyer's choice, what fin to put in a surfboard, because every surfboard has a, a perfect fin and a perfect position on where it should go to get the most out of that board. It's very, very important. But most of us, of course, built our own fins. When we build the board, we'd take the, the rail scraps when you'd cut it around the nose. You know, it creates this like triangle of extra cloth, and we lay all those triangles up, lay them up, and then cut a fin out of it, because it fits right in the triangle, right? And so we make our own fins, and then you glass them on, and then we would tune them to the board. And it was never less than three sessions of surfing a board to figure out the fin. To refoil, we'd reshape it. Always, for me, it's always the third time I'd be dead on it. I'd always start with a slightly oversized fin, and you feel the board out, and then you'd shrink it down a little, and it's like almost, you know. And then you take it down one more time. Yader told me that a fin is the perfect size when you get it down small enough to where it it feels like it's going to let go, but it almost never does. That's how he described it. That's when they go the fastest and work the best. You've got to get it, minimize that area so that it doesn't create any drag. And what, what I've explained is that fin placement is usually across from the hip of the tail curve. And you want the water to let go of the fin just slightly ahead of it letting go of the tail of the board. And that gives you that the most release and the quickest sweep. And it'll fly through the turn the fastest if when you get that balance going. And for that reason, you know, I've never believed in letting a customer have to pick out a fin because they don't know how, what area is in relation to the outline of the board, the area of the tail, and where to place the fin. And only the shaper should know that. 
it's engineered together. So when I describe cutting my fins down three times until they're just right, once I've done that, the board that I build for somebody, I give them the fin for the board that I already had done that on, so I know which fin to hand him. And the heavier guy gets less flex, and the lighter person gets more flex, because for obvious reasons, if you have more weight, that you're going to overbend a fin that has too much flex. It can also give a slightly larger fin to somebody who's heavier than somebody who's lighter. All that has to be, you know, balanced to the board for the person that you're making it for. So that's my 15 cents on the matter. And of course, all, all the little templates are Reno templates. You know, all of mine are. We, we've just modified them for our specific boards. It's so awesome. I just thought, why didn't somebody think of this sooner? I cannot understand it. I mean, really. Who would have ever come up with a D-fin? You know, I guess it's like a rudder on a sailboat. But, you know. That's where it started. It's where it had to start somewhere, I guess. But, but imagine going, you know, 15 years with a D-fin. When every fish in the ocean has one of these on it. <laughs> Does that make any sense to you? It doesn't to me. Nobody paid any attention to it. I just don't, I mean, I was just flabbergasted when I saw it. But, but he went to Australia. Here, George told me this story. He went there in, in 64. And when he returned in 1965, one year later, 90% of every longboard had a Greeno Stage 4 fin on it. One year. He went every winter, you know, their winter. Every surfboard, and you watch Children of the Sun, and you'll see that it's true. Every surfboard has a greeno fin on it. For me, I lay in bed at night when I go to sleep, and I think about surfing, and I think about boards and what might make them work better. It's, it's kind of how I end my day, because I just love it so much. I'm always thinking about it. And if I have an idea of what would be a perfect way to lay out a glider or something unique, if I wake up in the middle of the night, I get out of bed and I write it down, my ideas. And a lot of times, I don't ever go and do anything in a shaping room or in surfing until I have a vision of what exactly, oh, this is how I need to do it. This is what's going to be just right. I never just kind of go, well, I'll just kind of like, you know, try this. You know, it's never like that. It's always about trying to figure out what the best way to accomplish something is. And that, that keeps me so motivated because I love surfing. I love the aesthetics of it. I love the history of it. I love all the different boards and what they do and what they're made for. So every season, every different day, when the you know different kinds of waves for different kinds of boards i'm working on the best iteration of that type of surfing and that type of board for those conditions so it's it's year in and year out it's changing constantly because it's a different season and it's a different time for different boards and i'm traveling all the time so i love traveling and surfing and going and seeing different cultures and hanging out with different surfers 
and uh, and it just stimulates me. I want to have something that just it's extra special, you know, because surfing to me is just the the been the greatest gift in my life, you know, to be able to spend my time doing that. And for me, I love sharing what I've learned with other people by making them boards because that way you can take your vision of what you've learned, give somebody the board, and the board will directly teach them what it is that you've learned because it translates right through what the board wants to do is for you guys to, where surfboards come from and why do we ride what we ride today? What's the foundation of it? Because if you understand that, then you build on those platforms because I see a lot of the retro guys, they're, they're not building on anything. It's more like fashion. It's not, it's not, there's nothing behind it. It's just an image or that looks cool. Let's, let's take it and twist it a little bit, make it bizarre. You know, and so for me, that's the opposite of where we come from, because we like, no, we, we made those things for a reason. And there's all this wonderful history behind it of really serious people trying to make things work better. So it isn't just some, you know, frivolous, you know, piece of foam just to go screw around on. You know, so we take it really seriously. Yeah, and I guess that's natural. There's nothing wrong with that, you know, when I think about it. And that's why I was told, well, nobody cares. If you write a technical book, there's like 10 people who want to read it. And I understand that because it just it matters to me. And so it's really more personal. So like, that's why I was saying that sharing it is like I love making boards for people. I don't need to. I just as soon just surf. You know, it's a lot of energy to have to do that. Um, but I, I just, it, you can, it's something, it's the way you can share it, you know. So I, I've enjoyed that. I always tell him, don't complain, do something. You have to. He complains all the time about nobody understands how, why the... Because little is the guy. And, uh, and he's always pissed because people will buy someone else's cheap version. You know? And I said, it doesn't matter. You, it's up to you to promote it and keep it alive. That's what you've been doing all these years. Just keep at it. It isn't for everybody. That's part of what makes it cool.